hey, it's the summer and we're not going to be doing podcasts every single week because it's the summer. So if you want to know when there is a new podcast, please. Well, you can either just subscribe to the podcast and like a podcast subscriber, you get all the new ones or follow at Stack Podcast on the Twitters and we'll let you know when there are new episodes over the summer. Thanks. I turn into my mother. Wait till you have kids and then you talk to them in exactly the same phrase that your mother used to you? No, when you say kids, I mean you guys. (laughs) I walk around this office constantly sounding like my mother and I hate myself so much. This is the Stack Overflow Podcast, episode 111, recorded Thursday, June 8, 2017, at Stack Overflow headquarters in New York, New York, home of the new Second Avenue subway line, 98 years in the making, and it still doesn't go where you need it to, and where more than 8 million people live in peace and enjoy the benefits of democracy, at least for now. Today's podcast is brought to you by Sharpie. Need to write through five layers of paper at once and also leave a permanent stain on your desk? Use a Sharpie. Don't worry, the ink on your face will fade in approximately six to eight weeks. Together with us on today's podcast, we have some of our usual guests, news editor Ilana Itzaki. Hello, everyone. And several special guests from the site reliability engineering team. We have Tom Limoncelli, SRE manager and author of The Practice of System and Network Administration, Volume 1, DevOps and Other Best Practices for Enterprise IT, 3rd Edition. Hello. And... Members of the SRE team, Mark Henderson and Jason Harvey. Hello. Hi. Hey, guys. Welcome, everyone. I am your third best replacement host for days when neither Joel Spolsky nor Jay Hanlon are available, David Fullerton. Hi, David. Hi. Welcome. So this is unusual. Joel and Jay are absent. I am in control in the captain's seat. How does it feel? Oh, it feels great. feels great. You get a captain's chair? I, I do, but I, unfortunately, because I'm, I'm not actually in the office, which our, our guests can't see, I don't get the fun panel of buttons that make sound effects. So, uh, <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> As someone who's listened to the podcast for many years, it is fun to see how it's actually getting made. Well, for yes. those that can't see David, he is wearing a captain's hat. That's right. Yes. All right. So today, let's see, we've got a rant. So normally Joel's rant, but today, Tom, Tom, you have a rant for us. Yes, I do. So my rant, have you noticed the trend where software applications now hide buttons until you mouse over them? For example, in Google Hangouts, there's a bunch of buttons on the left-hand side, but they're invisible until you mouse over them and then they appear. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when mouse and menu, that whole paradigm was brand new, a big selling point of the new paradigm was discoverability. Users would see what features are available instead of having to memorize keystrokes or commands And with menus, you know, they're just there. In fact, even if a feature is disabled or not available at this moment, it would still be there. It'd just be italics or or grayed out or something. And this was considered a huge boon to user interface and usability. Well, five or six years ago, some designer decided that buttons should be hidden unless your mouse hovers over it. And this is crazy. So as a result, you have applications like Google Hangouts where users are prevented from being productive by this horrible design decision. And this is broken in so many different ways. It not only just hides features from users, but it doesn't even work well. Hover doesn't work very well in a lot of browsers, or if that window is not the active window, hovering doesn't work. And it certainly doesn't work on iPads and phones, and that's really where everything's moving. So why introduce this feature if it's not going to work on our future platforms? 
And the only excuse I've heard for this is that it removes visual clutter, which I can't imagine that solving that problem is worth this. I help many people use applications at times, and I'm often in this dialogue of, well, it's the button on the left. I don't see a button on the left. Move your mouse there. Oh, it magically appeared. Why did they do this? So in conclusion, buttons that only appear when the mouse is near them is an evil concept. It is a sadistic, mean-spirited prank being played on users. It undoes years of good user experience practice and replaces it with some cocaine-fueled dream had by an executive that watched too many Hollywood science fiction movies and said, yes, that's what I want my software to look like. So if you want to make the world a better place and your company has been infected by this idea, demand, demand that the designers undo this mistake, make buttons visible all the time. And that is my rant. That's good. It's a timely reminder, but this is not a new problem at all. I was just looking, actually, Joel, our AWOL host, wrote an article about this in July of 2008. Is that uh, the one where he talks about discoverability a lot? It's a little bit different, but it's literally called Don't Hide or Disable Menu Items. Yes, that's right. what I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. He's specifically talking about when it can't be used, he argues you should still show the button just to let people know that the functionality exists and not just make it hidden when you can't use it. Exactly. And this takes that problem and multiplies it by 100. I wonder if this is an extension of like the Apple dock. A lot of people will hide it by default, but initially it started out where you would hover over it and the icons would become big, but you could still yeah. know what was there. And a lot of people will hide that by default because you always know you move your mouse down and get to the dock. But in an application like Google Hangouts, that's not intuitive. Until you don't know, right? It's a, it's a big mm. assumption that you do know that. Because you watch somebody use, you know, a computer or an OS for the first time, and they don't know that. Yeah. And I remember I had this experience with Windows 8. Uh, Windows 8 had, like, the magic charm bar thing where, like, if you touched the upper right corner, these buttons appeared. And I literally remember I spent, like, 15 minutes trying to fit, like, I accidentally made it appear once, and I was like, what the heck was that? How do I make it happen again? And I was literally, like, some total noob computer user just, like, randomly pressing things and moving my mouse and touching things, trying to make this thing reappear. And when Apple redesigned the music app on the iPhones, they took away all of the shuffle and repeat controls, and they're not on the screen anywhere. I literally had to go to Twitter and ask, (laughs) how do I turn shuffle off? I haven't used this in six months. Shuffle is stuck on. I cannot figure it out. And you have to swipe up from the bottom of the screen, and there's no visual cues that that's what you need to do. There's no way to discover it on your own. How do they expect people to know this? Like, uh, yeah, intuition. Yeah. We should talk about the second anti-pattern, which is like the product tour, which is probably like the very first time you ever install Apple Music, it says, actually, Apple wouldn't do this, but a lot of companies will do the thing where it's like, let's explain to you all of the secret functionality that you're going to immediately forget. Right. And they do, you know, the overlay where it's like an arrow... Up here, there's a secret button to do this. And down here, there's a secret button, which, of course, you don't, you're new to the app and you don't know anything yet. So you don't even know why you would do those things. So This design is like really problematic, I think, for like elderly people as well, because they're trying to utilize systems which they're not familiar with. And when they hit these issues, like, I have no idea what button you're talking about. They have very limited resources to like, I mean, Mark, you went to Twitter to get yes. that information. You're not going to have someone that has, you touch this computer five times a year knowing that, oh, I, I know where to ask this. They're going to either give up or bother someone that they might know. and They might try and call customer service. Yeah. So I was also remembering one of the first websites I remember reading, like way back in the day, regularly, it was called Web Pages That Suck, if anyone <laughs> has ever heard of this. Yes. But they yeah. talked about this problem, actually. This must have been back in, oh gosh, I was in high school, so this is 15 years ago. 
and they talked about this. They, he called it mystery meat navigation. And mystery meat navigation is when there's like a button and you can't figure out. It was specifically around the time when people had discovered sort of like CSS barely even existed, but JavaScript, you could do the thing where when, and I remember doing this, when you moused over something, you would JavaScript replace it with a different image to make it change when you moused over it. And people were just discovering this. And so everyone thought it was brilliant to have like every button on their page be like some little, you know, gem or something that you moused over. And then it changed to an image with the word of what it did. And of course the word was in the image because we didn't have CSS then. So I was jealous of sites that did that because I was too lazy to do that on my sites. It was one of the first pieces of code that I ever, I didn't write, I copied it from somebody else's website, literally did the like view source, copy paste their code and like replaced some of the lines to get it so that my website would swap images when you moused over them. And the more likely scenario, I think, is you mouse over it and then the resource has not been loaded yet. So you mouse over it and then the image just disappears. And then five seconds later, it might load in. Well, I felt like a genius when I found out about the technique of preloading images, which I'm pretty sure back then meant you put it in an invisible image down at the bottom of the page so that the browser would fetch it so that there wouldn't be that delay when you moused over it while it went and fetched the image and loaded it. But yeah, if you just did it naively, and I think at the JavaScript, you were just changing the source attribute of the right. image, it would then the browser had to go download it. Yes, and if you didn't put your dimensions attributes in your image tags, as soon as you moused over it and the image went away, everything would move because <laughs> oh, it would load right. the little loading icon and then it would come back. So David, you copied this code from a website and used it on your own. That's, there's something, maybe there's a business model there. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe a whole website of code that you could copy for your oh, own Oh, I thought use. you were going in the direction of this is plagiarism or something. And uh, this is also back when all the websites would, remember when you'd have the websites that disabled right click to try to keep you right. from viewing oh, source. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> People have been complaining about that recently. There was Chrome added a button to download videos, like natively for HTML5 videos. And people were posting this bug report and saying, hey, I need this functionality removed because people should not be downloading my videos. And it was a humongous bug report, and they're like, my clients are yelling at me because people are downloading videos and they should not be. And Chrome actually did add an option uh, eventually to disable that button. All right. So lesson of today's rant. Don't make your UX user hostile. Make it so that people can tell what the thing does without having to mouse over it. All right. I believe next we have a one-minute tech review. Mark, did you have a tech review for us? I sure did. So I'm going to start my tech review with a question, and that is, is your iPhone too slim? Is your iPhone too light? Do you yearn for the days when mobile phones were the size of bricks and they were heavy and cumbersome to use? If you do, then mobile phone battery cases are for you. Today, specifically the OtterBox Universe, if you have an iPhone 7. Or if you're on an iPhone 6 like me, you might have tried the OtterBox Resurgence. These are huge battery banks that snap onto the back of your iPhone. And you use them if your iPhone, say, doesn't hold the battery charge that it used to, which is essentially every iPhone over 12 months old. If that is you, just do the right thing and get your battery replaced. They're about $60, it doesn't cost you very much, and you're not stuck with this half a pound behemoth strapped to the back of your phone. If you're the kind of person that's generally just going to use more battery power than a phone can survive, then you might think, oh, that's, you know, this is still something that can help me. But the amount of weight and bulk that it's going to add to your phone is just going to make it more cumbersome and irritating to use for your extra heavy usage. Honestly, if you're after a good multi-purpose solution, just get a good battery bank, throw it in your backpack, carry it around. It's more versatile. You can charge anything you need with it, and it's not going to get in the way of your general usage of your phone. But what if you want your battery to protect your phone? 
think. Yeah, it could do both. <laughs> I, I don't think lithium makes a good shield. It doesn't lithium has the same energy density as gasoline, and that's why these lithium ion batteries are But it's like a crumple zone. Like if you throw your phone on the ground, the battery's gonna go first before the phone, right? So And then it'll blow up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then the battery will catch fire because it got punctured. Yeah. <laughs> you know what works even better if you're in Manhattan? Don't carry anything around except your phone. And when you're at a bar, just hand your phone to the bartender and they will charge it for you. Yes. I have not seen this, this is a good in any hack. other city. But when I do it in front of people from out of town, they're amazed that this can happen. I'm pretty sure... Maybe I'm, I'm pretty sure it works. It works everywhere. And it works everywhere because this is not a service that like somebody at the restaurant decided to offer. It's because everybody who works there has to have solved this problem for themselves. And so all the like wait staff have some place in the back where they can plug things in. And so if you ask someone nicely, like, hey, do you have a place I can plug my phone in? They pretty much always do. Right. I think that's like a last resort kind of thing, though, it's, because it's nobody wants to. Resort. No, no, no. I think people are so afraid of letting go of their phone because what if someone texts you? Oh. What if someone calls you? <laughs> that's And true. then you have to give up your phone. It is a little weird to hand over your phone to a stranger. And also remember, always tip the bartender if you do this. Absolutely. I, that's, oh, that's some a people good don't idea. think of that. I'd be so scared to do that. Like when I go to locations that have sometimes you at your table, you'll have the USB charger now in the uh, places oh, in okay. San Francisco. I'm like, I'm never using that. I don't know. There's data cable in there. I'm scared. That's oh, true. I, I have a USB. If you really condom. want to be safe, you got to bring your own uh, just just power USB. Yep, exactly. Cable. Yeah. Yeah, I have a little adapter that you put between your phone and the USB cable, and it only lets the power through. Have you be pen oh. tested it? Because I, I found one of those as well. I actually bought one off of Amazon and I tested it and the data was still connected. <laughs> it was just a normal but... pass through. I was just going to get really excited about this product because that sounds awesome. And now you're telling me that they're all a lie. Like well, most things just on get Amazon. a multimeter and make sure it works. Well, I know that it works because it also <laughs> sends the right signals so that the phone goes into fast charge mode and data doesn't transmit during fast charge mode. So Is that true? Maybe on iPhones. Can I'm we not sure that's true of Androids. Oh, maybe that's an iPhone. Or this thing. could be a ruse by Tom. Or <laughs> I've been paid by the spy network to encourage people to not pen yes, test. Yes, the things. NSA. But we don't talk about them because they sponsor the podcast. All right. So, Mark, that's a big fat thumbs down, it sounds like, on battery cases. Absolutely. You are not a fan. I'm speaking from experience. Got it. Got it. So you don't have it on your phone now? No, I don't have it on my phone. I went and got a dbrand sticker instead. I will quietly remove my battery case from my phone and hope you don't notice. Okay. I'm just kidding. I do the external <laughs> power pack. Like you should. All right. As you know, we are preparing a constitution for Stack Overflow. Every week we bring you a proposal and you, our listeners, will decide on whether that proposal becomes a part of our new constitution. First up, results from last time on the Shailan Moquette Amendment. The amendment was pro or con if I say June 1st at midnight, am I referring to the morning of June 1st or the evening? That makes sense. So the yes. question is, does midnight mean the day before or the day after, because it's ambiguous. All right, so with the results of last week's survey question, here's news editor Ilana Itzaki. First time this has ever happened on the Stack Overflow podcast, we are at 100% pro. What? Wow. Yeah. 100% pro. Ari Porad at Ari Porad says, at midnight on January 1st, 0000, it was officially decided that the last second of the day is 115959. Oh, He's well, thank you. He's the winner. Yeah. <laughs> but this is interesting i mean a lot of flights that i will get especially coming out of alaska they will often be at 11:58 or 11:59, and i believe the reason why they time it exactly like that is so people are not confused oh, if midnight means because like if you say midnight you're like oh i'm leaving the, the evening of the first like nope you're already your flight is gone <laughs> yeah there's no reason for a flight to be booked at 
twelve zero zero. Yeah, or twelve twelve or yeah. anything after immediately after twelve is problematic. I think. Yeah, and you know the way trains deal with daylight savings time changes is the, all trains just stop for two hours so that they're not traveling during the the time where. Wait, really, that sounds like an urban legend. Is that actually true? You know, I would have to look that up on skeptics.stackexchange.com, but I'm pretty sure it's true. That would be amazing if that's true. Like the entire U.S. train system grinds to a halt just to avoid dealing with daylight savings. Changes. That would make sense for the U.S. train system, though. I think they I would. would I would that. believe it about the U.S. train system, and I would be a hundred percent astonished if, like, the Japanese train system did the same, because I'm sure they've got their stuff together. They would probably and, find uh, that appalling. And the U.S. train system is just like totally incompetent. True. You know, time zones were originally called something like train zones or tra train time because yeah. people didn't have time zones and they were yeah, only they introduced because people were traveling fast enough to make them mean something. They were invented because of the train schedule problem. Yes. Like you needed a common way to express time. When is the train going to arrive? Yeah. yeah. And invented in the U.S. And then we exported it to the rest of the world and ruined everyone else's <laughs> lives and made programmers sad. Ooh, you suck. <laughs> okay. So okay. we have a new constitution question for this week. This comes to us from listener Casey O'Rourke at Casey underscore O'Rourke one on Twitter. And the question is, is it okay to throw things in other people's trash when walking down a row of cubicles? So the scenario is you're in an office, I guess. You're walking down the line and there's, there's cubicles and the trash can is clearly somebody else's trash can in their cubicle. And you've got, I don't know, some piece of trash in your hand. Can you just throw it in somebody else's trash can? Or is that like their trash can and you are not allowed to use it? Just to be clear, pro is, yes, of course you can use the trash can. It's a trash can. This is what it's for. Con is, no, if it's in someone else's cubicle, you can't use their trash. Mm, wow, well, this is difficult. I mean, if you think about it, nothing here is owned by the employee, so... It's contextual as well. Like, what type of trash are you dropping off? If it's like an empty Something can of soda... No, that's a good yeah. point. If it's like your stinky leftover lunch, yeah, your if, lunch if, leftovers... If it's an empty bag of Doritos, I wouldn't put that in somebody's cubicle. <laughs> Wait, wait, you consider an empty bag of Doritos to be, that seems pretty, that seems that pretty smells safe so to bad. Me. Like, Does well, it? Doritos smell really bad by themselves. I don't know, the bag, the smell in the bag lingers. There goes that sponsorship deal. They <laughs> smell like delicious manufactured nacho cheese flavored. I don't see what the problem if is. If you get the plain ones, they don't smell, but everything else can be pretty bad. I have two personal rules. I wouldn't inflict this on the whole constitution, but my rules is I will throw stuff out in someone else's trash can while walking through the cubes. Only if A, it is not smelly, and B, they don't see me. <laughs> <laughs> so my office in the Stack Overflow New York office is right next to the common area where the ping pong table is. And every day I find stray ping pong balls in my <laughs> office. Do I get permission to throw them into somebody else's trash can? But they're not trash. But they're not garbage. But they're on my floor <laughs> and it's my office. Do you care if they go into your office to get them? What you should no. do is passive aggressively start collecting them until they run out of ping pong balls and they're like, what happened to all the ping pong balls? And, you and then while someone is playing a game, just throw all of them at the same time <laughs> onto the table. Oh, that's yeah. much better than my idea, which was then start selling them for $5 each. <laughs> you want to play ping pong? Le yeah, Lease outside them. my office? Don't sell them. Lease them back to them. <laughs> Charge per game. Put an advertisement up in your window. Should. But yeah. Mark, you're missing out on the awesome opportunity to use that tool that we have for picking up ping pong balls, which I had never seen until I came to this company. No, no. It's like this six foot long stick with an upside down tennis racket on the bottom of it. <laughs> right. It kind of looks like yeah. a lacrosse stick. This is yeah. my favorite thing because it is, oh my gosh, it is so 
homemade, and yet we bought it. We paid we paid money for it, and, and we have two of them. Like, so one I mean, could it, be in Mark's office, and one could be for everyone else. It's so clear that what this thing is is somebody bought a length of one inch PVC pipe, and they bought it not a tennis racket, like a badminton racket, and they mm -hmm. removed half of the strings from the badminton racket, and then they attached like a fishing net on the other side. And what it is, is because they removed half the strings, you pop it down over the ball and the ball kind of bends the strings enough to pop in, but it doesn't have enough weight to fall out. So it actually works brilliantly, but it's this totally like homemade thing. And then the kicker is it is covered in stickers that proclaim proudly that it was made in America. <laughs> and there's just something about it that is just so, so iconic of, you know, of a product made by hand in America that I, I just love this thing. But it works. We should share a picture of it. It does it exactly does. It what great. it says it would do. I wonder who holds the patent. Mmm. Got to be a patent on something like that. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Otherwise, we would be buying very well-designed knockoff products on Amazon That's for right. 11 cents. All right. So back to our Constitution question. The question, again, is it okay to throw things in other people's trash when walking down a row of cubicles? Pro. Yes, you can use the trash can. Con. No, you can't use the trash can. Post your answer to Twitter using the hashtag Stack Overflow Podcast with either pro or con and your explanation, short but insightful. The best explanation, whether on the winning side or the losing side, will be read on next week's podcast and win your very own Stack Overflow sticker, courtesy of the Stack Overflow Podcast. Woo. Also, submit your ideas for future constitutional amendments, and one of them might be named after you. Post your proposed constitutional amendment to Twitter using the hashtag, again, Stack Overflow Podcast. And if your idea is not terrible, we may feature it in a future poll. So now, finally, we get to talk about the SRE team. Before we get into that, I want to do a developer story. So just to hear a little bit about sort of some of your background, and we won't do everybody since there's kind of a lot of us here, but for developer story, we like to ask just how did you get started in tech? How did you kind of get where you are today? What initially caught your interest or what was your path into tech? Just to hear everybody's different story. So Tom, why don't we start with you, Tom Limoncelli? Sure. How did you get into tech? How did I get into tech? Well, I trace my developer story back to when I was eight and a half years old and I saw the original Star Wars movie in the theater while the family was, I guess we were on vacation camping and we actually stopped camping to go to see this movie. And I was... That's my kind of camping. And yeah, <laughs> I think it was raining. If I remember it was raining and we said, well, here there's this movie. Anyway... <laughs> So we went to see it, and I was eight and a half years old, and I was fascinated by the robots. In fact, I thought it was a movie about robots because I basically ignored the rest <laughs> of the movie. It wasn't until uh, you know it came out on you know whatever DVD or whatever, VHS. and I rewatched it and realized this those were the you know the side characters. Comic relief, really. Yeah, but I was fascinated by robots, and I thought technology was so cool. And around the same time, we had a school trip to a bank, and we got a tour, and I saw this big mainframe room. And I imagined that I would grow up to be a programmer and I would lead a very boring, uneventful life as a programmer coding in the basement of some bank. And I would be so happy if that could be my future. <laughs> That's what I envisioned. That's because this was, you know, pre-internet, pre-everything. Way before going into tech was cool. Yeah. So in sixth grade, I got access to my first computer. It was a, a paper terminal. If you've used, you know, terminal or mac or whatever you know that is emulating what used to be a paper terminal and i sat there and typed out my basic programs that i learned soon after that i got a vic 20 and started programming at home which led to you know fast forwarding a bit you know i went to college at a liberal arts school but i got a computer science degree there and i was always fascinated by protocols 
but I didn't have access to the internet or pre-internet, you know, ARPANET stuff. And then the internet happened and all of this stuff became cool. And I was like, boy, did I luck out. I don't have to be sitting in the basement of a bank writing boring COBOL code. And here I am today. And what about the robots? And, you know, I never actually got into robots as far as programming or anything. I guess now that they're a lot cheaper and easier to There's access, I should. Yeah. Now I have more time. There's all um, sorts of fun things you can do now. Yeah. And, you know, since it's the 40th anniversary of the Star Wars premiere, right? So you can guess my age. What better time to build your own protocol droid? Absolutely. You also have the potential, you know, your, your interest in your career began with robots. It could end with robots, too. I'm pretty sure it will. <laughs> I'm sorry. And when you say end with robots, you're assuming the scenario there is he builds a robot and then the robot kills him. Yeah, right? that's, that's, that's one option. That's, that's I assume the, that the robots will take over. And, you know, there's a lot of different theories of what will happen, you know, if the singularity happens and, you know, will they enslave us or will we be their masters or whatever. My hope, my sincere hope is that they think we're cute and make us their pets. And they just take care of us forever. I used to be very optimistic about this, but increasingly my, my view of humanity is sinking. And at, at this point, I'm pretty sure the robots will just get frustrated with us and wipe us out. True. We're pretty bad at what we do. Yeah. I think Babylon 5 is a better predictor of the future than Star Trek. <laughs> Great. Well, on that note, Mark, did you want to tell us about how you got into tech? Yeah, sure. I mean, mine's a little bit different to Tom's. So I grew up in the Australian outback, if you can't tell, you love my accent, um, not an American. Which Wait, you grew oh, up in the restaurant? No, I did Oh, yeah, <laughs> in the outback steakhouse itself. You know, I lived oh, in the kitchen, I would so clean up. That is so great. You could have awesome <laughs> blossoms anytime you wanted. Yeah, not a thing, but okay. Yeah, so I grew up in the Australian outback, and there was fairly limited access to technology where I grew up. So if there are anyone who remembers the early Amstrad lines of computers, I, I had an Amstrad CPC 6128. It was a hand-me-down from my father, and he gave that to me in the 90s, and that was a computer from 1985. So I got started hacking around in BASIC on there and learning about operating systems. It had two modes. It had a BASIC mode or a CPM mode and, and uh, mucking around with all of that. And then because my parents had noticed my affinity for computers, one year, they bought me a 386 for Christmas. And we're talking at a time when 386s were already seriously out of date. I mean, we're talking <laughs> late 90s by this stage. And I got a paper round and I saved up money and, and I would go down to my local computer store and, you know, shuffle through their parts bin and I would ask them how much for this and how much for that and eventually, you know, built my 386 into a 486 SX25 with a math coprocessor floating point unit and you know i went from two megs of ram to four megs of ram and wow. sort of realized that somewhere along that line that this was something that i really loved and, and really wanted to do at school i was constantly in trouble for being in the wrong place whether it was getting into the wrong places on the school network or <laughs> being in the like literally in the wrong place at the school and i did a span of detention that i had to do working with the systems administrators at the school. So it wasn't really detention at all. It was actually kind of fun. And that got me into a lot of the networking side of things and seeing how everything joined together and protocols. And, you know, I learned that I could use Wireshark to, well, not Wireshark back then, but... Ethereal. Uh, ethere thank you. Yeah, to uh, sniff teachers' passwords off the 10 megabit <laughs> hub network where everyone was on the same broadcast domain and SMTP was unencrypted. And Did you, you could... change any grades? 
I did not change any grades, but I may have gone through some teachers' emails. <gasps> it was all pretty innocent stuff. I mean, this this was we're still talking the late nineties here, early two thousands. You 2000s, didn't get anybody so. fired. No, no, not at all. Not that I think so. <laughs> <laughs> and then my path sort of became a bit more stereotypical, where I went to university, thought it was a fairly complete waste of time. I think because a lot of what they taught at the university that I went to anyway, and I'm not going to name them because it is a good university. It's just not good at the course that I went to. You know, they were covering, again, the stuff we're talking 2003 here. They were teaching you about IRQs and DMAs and setting jumpers on network cards back in the days before we had auto configuration and plug and play and USB and all of the things we take for granted today. And that sort of went on for a long time. I got a job as a developer at a software company in Sydney, and I really started to push my employer into saying, hey, why don't we do some hosted services? Let me buy some servers. Give me a budget. Let me see what I can do. And found this little website called Stack Overflow, and then found a sister site to that called Serverfault, which is for all the systems administration stuff. Got pretty heavily involved I've heard of there. These yeah, now here I am. I've moved to New York and working with Probably friendly, one of the best companies in the world. Aww. And 100% fewer crocodiles to wrestle on your way to work. Yes, yes. But here you have plenty of alligators to make up there, for it. There are alligators, but they're like half the size of the Australian oh. crocodiles. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, used to. Oh, something you're going to have to worry about, David. Our technology bites us in the ass, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I don't have to look out for drop bears when I'm you know, going out for a walk. And I actually said to my wife shortly after coming here, since walking around New York, and I, and I said... I don't have to check for deadly animals anymore. <laughs> and, you know, I haven't seen a snake since moving here. Well, not a reptile snake, anyway. I haven't seen any poisonous spiders. I haven't been bitten by anything. It's been glorious. Wow, the things you take for granted. Yeah. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'm like, I hear about Australia, and I'm like, oh, I should go visit. And then I hear a little bit more about Australia, and I'm like, nope, never. That sounds <laughs> terrible. David, I've been to Australia five or six times, depending on how you count it. Did you get your animal and Outside of back? zoos, I was never face-to-face -face with scary animals. So you I were. Highly, you just I highly didn't see them because they were so well camouflaged. Well, maybe. But I highly recommend visiting Australia. We do try to train them not to attack foreigners because tourism is an important part of our industry and our GDP. So, right, right. you know, we teach them to look for accents and whatnot and just we like leave them alone. <laughs> They do it based on accents. Yeah, Australia is so that's nice good. that they don't have terms for bad weather. I noticed... Do they have bad weather? On my first trip, I asked a friend who was local, I said, do you know what the weather is going to be like tomorrow? And he said, oh, it'll be fine. And I thought he was telling me, like, go away. You know, you don't... I'm not going to answer your question. It's like... And so I went to the hotel desk and asked them, what's the weather going to be like? And they said, oh, tomorrow. And they said, oh, it'll be fine. And I was like, no one will tell me what the weather is going to be tomorrow. And so I go to another local friends. And I explained this. And said, no, no, Tom, that's, that's just, you know, it, it'll be, you know, 70 be and, and sunny and wonderful. No, it won't be 70. It'll be 21. But thank you. It'll be 21 <laughs> Celsius. Oh, that sounds really cold. And I was like, wow, what a country. We do get bad weather sometimes. And when it gets bad, it gets properly bad. Right? So cyclones or, you know, where I lived in the outback Queensland, you know, it wouldn't rain all year, but when it did rain, it would be thunder and lightning and you know trees yeah. would get knocked down and, and all it would the be... and all the spiders came out yes that's right <laughs> yeah so it does occasionally have bad weather does queensland have statute of limitations for things like computer fraud because you know now now that's a matter of public record you might be careful when you go back uh, to 
couldn't tell you. I mean, that was True. 15 years ago. So <laughs> yeah. I think I'm good. Today's podcast <laughs> is fictional, right? Yeah. yeah At least one of our hundreds of millions of listeners is in law enforcement in Australia. So you're really in trouble now. My name is Tom Limoncelli. Just <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Tom. That was Tom Limoncelli's story. Just so plead the fifth. All right. So back to the SRE team. And SRE is a site reliability team. So just tell us a little bit, like, what does an SRE do around here? What are some of the projects that you guys work on? Have we even said what SRE stands for? He I just, just said it. Oh, he said it just, I just so said Site reliability engineering. engineering. It's the part of the IT component of a company that keeps your websites and applications running. So... Here at Stack Overflow, that involves building the infrastructure that is used for all the websites and applications, as well as keeping them running and scaling them and troubleshooting them and... Occasionally maintaining infrastructure you hate, too. That's, that's, mm. that's a good, nice part of it. Yeah. Yes. Oh, and is this a good time to mention that we're hiring? <laughs> we'll get to that, Tom. We'll oh, get to oh, that. oh, okay. We'll get to that. Probably you don't want that right next to the talking about maintaining infrastructure you hate. Well, we'll get when we get to the glory. No, we'll talk there's about nothing hiring. here that we hate. Nope. No, it's no, just no. stuff we haven't loved enough. All wonderful. So maybe a hot button issue. Why do you call yourself site reliability engineers and not? I guess some people would say it's oh, oh that sounds like sysadmin. Isn't that what you guys do? So we don't have to deal with printers. Yes, it's a different department in the company that deals with desktop support, printers, laptops, that kind of stuff. The SRE team is laser focused on things related to the applications, the products of the company. Got it. Okay, so all of you have worked at different companies before you came here. I can imagine, you know, site reliability, this kind of stuff looks somewhat similar company to company. What do you think are some of the differences, you know, that you noticed coming to Stack Overflow in you know, how site reliability works here or how we do things differently or anything like that. I think one of the big differences here is that we're probably one of the fewer sites out there of our type that are still running on-premises. So, you know, most tech companies or most uh, internet sites these days are often running out of some uh, the cloud on Amazon or Azure or something along those lines. But we still have our own servers sitting in cages, which we maintain ourselves. That has like really informed a lot of the decisions and how we maintain the site and how we go about doing things. We're very much vertically scaled where we focus on like having very beefy servers that we're taking care of and making things hyper-optimized. Whereas uh, places that are operating in the cloud are much more horizontally scaled where you just, you know, fit up new servers to address problems and you're not necessarily focusing on optimization all the time. I think there's a big difference from here from the rest of the companies they might deal with. What's that actually mean? So it's sort of scaling vertically. What does our stack kind of look like? How many servers are we talking about? You know, hundreds, thousands, millions of servers? It's on the order of hundreds of physical hardware servers in two different data centers. So that means... Unlike some SRE teams, we do spend a bunch of time racking and stacking new equipment. I would say too much of our time is spent patching firmware and troubleshooting hardware issues. We're getting better at that. We're automating a lot of that away. The rest of our stack, you know, what we run on top of all this is very similar to what you would put in Amazon or Google Cloud or whatever. You know, it's load balancers that talk to web front ends, that talk to application servers and database servers and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. One big difference that goes back into the scaling is just, I mean, we run on 10 web servers. For a side of our scale, you'll find very few places that are actually operating at that scale. Yeah. By 10 web servers, what you mean is basically all the traffic, all the, you know, requests that come to our website are divided over 10 smaller web servers, actually 10 kind of beefy web yep. servers. A lot of companies, it would be a thousand machines to handle the number of users that we get. But like Jason said, we have super optimized all of our processes so that we only need to maintain 10 machines. And that, that changes our behavior with how we like troubleshoot things. And uh, because, I mean, if you're in the cloud and you have something that might be 
have an anomaly or not performing well, oftentimes you just shut it down. But we don't do that here. We tend to dive into things and discover what is going on exactly just because that's the way our infrastructure is built. And having such a small footprint also means if you're running thousands of servers on-premises, you may be looking at very complicated networking stacks. You might be using you know, fancy switch routing protocols like ECMP, or uh, you might have to run internal BGP like routing sessions to just keep all that amount of traffic online. But by only having you know, a handful of servers in a couple of racks, we don't need super complicated infrastructure to keep everything online. We can follow KISS principles and keep it simple, stupid, easy to troubleshoot, easy to dig into. You know, you don't need a PhD to figure out how our network works. Right. In other companies that I've been at, what SREs do is spend most of their time troubleshooting their troubleshooting system or troubleshooting their scaling system. And our infrastructure is so simple that the scaling is simple and therefore we spend more time on higher value things. So as we said, sort of the, the tendency is that the trend is for everyone to move into the cloud. Do you think this is sort of something that's just sort of weird to us that we're not in the cloud? Is this something that more companies should be considering keeping it on-prem? Is it just kind of unique to our load? What would you say if you're talking to somebody else? I mean, I think it depends a lot on your initial decisions because that will inform the future of your infrastructure. Like if you are developing an application, if you're going into the cloud, you're going to be developing the foundation of that application differently than you're going to be developing if you are on-premises. And early on, we decided we were on-premises and we built around that concept and we've continued to stick with it. So even if we were to take our application today, I mean, it would not operate in the cloud in the same way that we would have to change a lot of how the performance works, adjust a lot of the tuning just would not translate over there. So it's just that initial decision really informed a lot of the future. And I think today, the entry cost into the cloud is so low that a lot of startups are just going to go by that by default. That wasn't necessarily the case when Stack Overflow started. Yeah. And also, if you're starting a startup today, time to market is critical. And so if you can be spun up in the cloud in a, a day or a week, that's much more important than, well, we're going to you know, start building our data center and six months from now, we'll be able to have our first customer you probably don't want to do that. So if I was starting something today, nine times out of 10, I, I think it would be cloud first. And you don't need that initial infrastructure investment either in the cloud. Like there's going to be a minimum number of servers you're going to need to buy to have something on-premises. And that initial spend to buy those servers and get them in place is just going to be pretty high if you are trying to figure out if a business is going to survive in the next six months. Right. If you're unsure if the product is any good, you want to be able to fail fast. And you can do that in the cloud very quickly. The advantage of the cloud, it helps you fail really fast. Yep. Yeah, well, fail and then try something different. Oh, okay. You know, but long-term costs in the cloud, I mean, on-premises, you know, we're pretty mature in our on-premises. And I think uh, long-term costs in the cloud are going to be much higher over time. If long-term cost was a concern and you were starting with a very simple, non-Silicon you know, Silicon Valley startup, then you might start on on-premises and in the long-term probably save a lot of money. The other benefit is being in the cloud lets you ramp up super fast. So if you're a wild success and you go from 1,000 customers to a million customers overnight, you can just with an API call, allocate more machines and scale. And that's something you can't do with hardware. You I mean have weeks of ordering and designing and maybe leasing new data center space and all those things take a large amount of time. It's also one of the things you guys didn't mention, but one of the main advantages of being in the cloud is then you don't need a site reliability team, right? You can just fire all of the other <laughs> oh, site no. reliability engineers. Well, you, have to, you have to go serverless oh. if you want to do that. Oh, oh, that makes sense, actually. So, you know, that's a funny point, but the serious aspect of that is kind of true. A lot of startups, you know, it's just two developers and they don't have the system administration background. And in AWS or Google Cloud, they can just get started. And 
months and months and months in, maybe they start hiring operations people, but that's pretty cool. And having to manage fewer people is a huge accelerator. Yeah, you also don't need people with as wide variety of skills. Like, I mean, on the SR team here, we have a pretty wide variety of skills where because we need to potentially look at networking and hardware and all those types of things. Whereas in the cloud, it's much more focused and it's probably easier to find candidates that might be viable. Yeah. Also, something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I don't know if I'm ready to put this into words properly, but your alignment with your vendors is better. So for example, if a bit of hardware breaks, if you have a server and it breaks, you probably have some service contract and the company will replace it. But it's to their advantage to not do a great job at handling that service request. You've paid the service contract. Now any service that you actually require reduces their profits. This is like trying to get any company to honor a warranty. Right. Now, the flip side is in the cloud, you pay per used, you know, usable CPU minute or hour or whatever, which means it's to their advantage to have everything working. So it's kind of like if instead of paying a doctor every time you're sick, what if you paid doctors $100 a day, but you didn't have to pay them if you were sick? And then that would totally align your priorities with your doctor's priorities and that better alignment makes for better business. And that's an aspect of the cloud that I don't think people talk about too much. And and it's actually the reason that I think that the cloud is a bigger threat than people realize, or that hardware vendors do not admit that this is a bigger threat to them than it is. One thing I want to go back to real quick is it was mentioned that, you know, in the cloud, if you suddenly become an overnight success, you can just spin up a ton of servers. And I think that like people tend to expect that, but I've rarely found it to be actually the case. Like it may be easier to spin up infrastructure in the cloud to suddenly handle a giant jump in popularity, but you really have to tune the infrastructure as you're growing the infrastructure. Because a lot of people like, I mean, at Reddit, we had so many performance problems at one point in time, at least. If I could have, you know, doubled the infrastructure and solved all those problems, we definitely would have. But doubling the infrastructure in the cloud actually would not have done that because it was kind of fundamental design issues that we had to work around. So a lot of people on the internet, like when a service has stability, they'll complain like, oh, why don't you guys just buy more servers? You need to buy better servers. And that's like, if people could throw money to solve performance problems, they often right. would, but it's just not viable in a lot of cases because these problems are complex. It's actually, you've gotten your infrastructure to a really good place where it's like your infrastructure needs scale linearly with like incoming requests with traffic or with business or things like that. What actually happens when you scale is you find all the places where it's like not linear, right? right. You find the next bottleneck. You find bottlenecks, right? And it's all about, you find the next bottleneck and then everything is crashing and you have to fix that bottleneck. And because it's usually not linear, it's like a bottleneck. You can't just double the number of servers and, you know, you, you can sometimes buy your way out of it briefly, but... We've definitely right. seen that over and over again. Like you just have to get in and solve the problem. And usually it means making application changes, making infrastructure changes. It's usually not as easy as just throw money at the problem. Yeah. You double the number of machines you have. And now you discover that your system that maintains, you know, patching or, or some other, you know, infrastructure related thing doesn't scale. And now you have two problems on your hands. Yeah. And that can be a trap that I think some startups can get into, especially if they're just starting out with a couple of developers and they're in the cloud. And the assumption is, well, if we become a gigantic success, then we're not going to have to worry about it because we're just going to add 100 more servers. And I think a lot of people will start hitting major performance problems and it might impact their startup's viability. Yeah. Now, the flip side is, and this is a very businessy reason, not a technical reason, but you also have the benefit of fewer missed opportunities or you know, what they call opportunity costs. 
and this is a story that there's videos of this on the internet and it's mentioned in one of my books, <laughs> but shameless plug, shameless plug. I have no shame. That was a totally shameless plug. I mean, my plugs are automatically shameless because I just plug. You know, no shame. I know no shame. So when Steve Jobs called the head of Netflix many years ago and said, we are going to introduce video on our phone and we want Netflix to be on the stage during the keynote where we announced this. And it's three weeks away and all you have to do is say yes and re-render your entire video library to be this new screen format size. And the head of Netflix was able to say, yes, we're going to do that because they spun up a bazillion virtual machines in AWS, re-rendered everything, and they were able to make that commitment. And what they didn't do was they didn't say, sure, Steve Jobs, we'd love to do this. Give us one year to build a bunch of new data centers, re-render everything. Could you delay your announcement by a year? Because if they had said that, he would have gone to some competitor. So that is not even a what's the cost of the cloud versus hardware. That's a we just would have had to say no to that opportunity. And that's the kind of thing that's not a linear improvement in profits. That's exponential. So as you mentioned before, I was switching a little bit. We are hiring, right, for the SRE team. That so is true. right now we are hiring and you can apply today if you go to our hiring website, which we'll link in the show notes. I want to just talk about maybe what do we look for in an SRE or what do you guys think, you know, makes somebody stand out or really makes a great candidate when you're looking at resumes or interviewing people or things like that? We'd look for three things. Our infrastructure is a mixture of Windows and Linux, which is kind of unique in the industry. So we need someone that is strong in either Linux or Windows and is, they don't have to be strong in the other one, but they at least have to not fear it. So that's one. Number two is we want all of our SREs to be coders. So you have to at least be able to do, you know, your basic coding and the more coding you can do, the better. And the third thing is we would love to have people that have experience with web operations. So you know, IT is kind of very different when you're dealing with large websites that face the internet. It's not a hard requirement, but it is definitely something that makes a, a plus for candidates. Oh, and if you live in Denver, we would like to. <laughs> so it's a remote job. You can work from anywhere. We're looking for people in the, the U.S. time zones. But boy, if you could be near our Denver data center, that would also notch you up a little bit. Generally, I think like, at least in terms of interviewing, one thing that tends to stand out to me personally is talking to someone that has real passion about their job and what they're doing. Because I think everyone on this team has a huge amount of passion. And any conversation that I might bring up with Mark, we could easily just go on for another two hours. And that's, you know, that's one aspect of passion. Just we're very interested in what we're doing. And we're constantly thinking about how we can do our jobs better. I think we all love our jobs. One of the things that I try to look for is, or rather what I don't look for, is I'm not particularly fussed if you come from a bank or if you come from, you know, IBM or somewhere where you've had to wear a shirt and tie or, you know, dress smartly every day. I think in our startup industries, we tend to frown upon people who have worked in those sort of industries as, oh, they're old and they're stuffy and they do things the waterfall way and we're not interested in, you know, I don't think they'd be a good culture fit. And I think that's a real cop-out. I think a lot of people who come from the non-startup, non-trendy backgrounds who can bring a lot of really good things to a team like ours. And 
I think it's a shame if we overlook people just because of where they've come from, you know, wasn't an interesting place or it wasn't a trendy place to work at. Yeah, we have a lot of different backgrounds in the team and that's part of our power. I mean, an issue comes up and one person approaches it from a very different perspective than another person on the team and that lets us make better decisions. I think the industry is probably full of sysadmins and SREs that are languishing in jobs that they don't particularly enjoy, but they might think that that's the best that they can get. SREs are in demand right now, <laughs> and there are plenty of amazing, talented people that have you know, been working at a bad bank job for the last 20 years, and we would love to talk to them. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. So if you have a bad job <laughs> and you want to talk to us about it and tell us how awful it is, you can apply at stackoverflow.com slash work here be a list of all of our openings, but especially the site reliability engineer team would love to talk to you, you know, if you have a crappy job. <laughs> all right. So we're bringing back a segment we did once a little while ago called failure is always an option. Failure is always an option is an opportunity to share some stories where maybe we've made mistakes in the past. And the idea is to both, you know, share our stories and learn from them, but also just to get out there this idea that, you know, even senior engineers make mistakes sometimes and you have to be able to talk about them and not, you know, shy away from them and to kind of de deflate this myth of the super engineer who never makes any mistakes. So who's got a failure story? I have a 45 minute presentation <laughs> that I often give about the time I nearly sunk an entire company and deleted everything and lost all of our customer data. But I've actually changed my mind. I'm not going to talk about that today. What? <laughs> no, I have to keep some mystery. And I think I've already shared too much about my potential criminal past. <laughs> no, actually, I think this is a really good thing to follow on from the job advertisement that we just plugged. And that was the first real job that I was given to do at Stack Overflow. I'd been here like three months and they'd gone, right, it's time for you to spread your wings and fly solo and see what you can do. And we have a log stash cluster here. It's, it's a fairly big cluster in terms of its capacity. It had about 40 terabytes of data in it at the time. And it was full of every log message that any of our servers had ever generated going back since whenever that cluster had first been installed. It had web logs. It had a whole bunch of stuff. And a lot of it was irreplaceable. And they said, Mark, we want you to upgrade this cluster from one version to the next. And it was a breaking change version. So the whole cluster had to be shut down and then you would bring a node back on one at a time, upgrade it, and then bring it up. And it was going to be a process that was going to take about 18 hours, which was like five minutes of work and then wait six hours and then do the next one and the next one and the next one. And I thought I'd done all my homework. I thought I'd done all my prerequisites and checked everything. And I do the first machine. I shut the whole cluster down. We do the first machine and I bring it online. This is about seven o'clock in the morning. I fire up that first machine and start the upgrade procedure. And about five hours goes by and it has barely started. Like there's practically no data has come back online. And I start to look at it and I'm thinking, oh, this is going to take way too long. I'm not going to get this done in our maintenance window. And so I thought, right, I'm just going to speed this up. I'm just going to do all six at once. It's not best practices, but that's just what I'm going to do. I'm going to spin everything back up. I'm going to upgrade them all at once. It's going to be quicker and I will have avoided a potential, you know, 60 hour outage for this cluster service. But of course, that's not what happened, was it? What happened was not a single machine finished upgrading because I hadn't checked a particular prerequisite. And this prerequisite that hadn't been met, if you start the upgrade without it, you're done. There is no going back. And 
the ultimate answer was to trash 40 terabytes of data, whole thing gone, start again from fresh. And I earned the nickname of Log Destroyer. So <laughs> <laughs> you lost 40 terabytes of data and you're still here. Because... I am, yes, I am still here. Right. And everyone was really good about it and nobody yelled at me. Nobody poked me with a sharp stick. It was like, oh, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start again. And people were really good about it. And now you're our log expert because you know not to do that thing, which yes. is one fact that you have that the rest of the team doesn't. That's right. And so what am I doing now? I'm planning the next upgrade for that exact same cluster. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Tom or Jason, do you guys have a story to share? Yeah. So this is sort of a failure story, but a little bit more indirect in my actions. So at a previous employer, we were dealing with an individual that was constantly poking and prodding and trying to do various ways to break in and abuse various resources on our infrastructure. And this had been going on for several months at this point, and we can never identify this person directly and we, so we couldn't report to the authorities because they were always fairly protected behind a proxy and so this was ongoing for quite a while and i was getting sick of it and i decided one evening i'm going to find a way to figure out who this is so i can at least contact the authorities about it and get this visual off our back so i tried a little trick i mean there's some methods that you can use to try and get around proxies and the method i tried was once i had identified what ip that person was using at the time I sent them a page that like a loaded a flash object and flash objects have a tendency to connect over things that are not proxy and it might reveal the IP. So I tried that and sent it off, but uh, I never got any hit back. So I was like, oh, well, I guess that failed. I'll try something. And this was maybe Friday night. So I went to sleep, um, slept in the next morning and I woke up and I woke up to the sound of my wife's iPad making the lost my iPad sound. And I went and grabbed her iPad and the message on the front of it was don't click jack me, bro. And I was still kind of half asleep, so I was like, wait, what is this? What is this? And then I heard my work cell phone. It was alerting and beeping, and I went and checked it, and it was my coworker saying, hey, can you please contact us immediately? And so I ran downstairs trying to figure out, still kind of half asleep, still had been slept in, and they asked me to call. And I called in, and I, I was like, hello, you know, half asleep, voice groggy. And the first question with the coworker I had spent a lot of time with and who knew my voice was, is this really Jason? And I was like, oh, no, something really horrible has happened. So turns out through the night, early hours of that morning, there had been an individual which had compromised my access in some way and started trying to break into pretty much everything that I was ever associated with. And one of those things was my work accounts. Luckily, thanks to two-factor authentication, they did not get into anything super secret, but they got into pretty much everything else. My Minecraft.net account was broken into for some reason. My local power and gas account was broken into just absolutely everything. And we we're digging through trying to figure out how this happened because I generally consider myself to be, you know, pretty conscious about my security. And what had happened is the attacker had first identified that it was me that was interacting, trying to send the information off to them, found my registrar that I use for my personal domain, accessed my registrar in a way that is somewhat unclear and was able to change my mail records over to that person's domain. And so any email that would go to my personal domain would get forwarded on to the attacker's domain. And my wife also happened to use that same account. So they basically found every place on the internet that that account, that email address had existed, either myself or my wife, used the reset password link and reset the passwords on absolutely wow. everything and got into the Apple account and you know, messed with my wife's iPad. Luckily, the person didn't like take any action to destroy any data on any of my stuff. They like they got into my Twitter and stuff like that and they changed my bio, I think, but no absolutely malicious stuff, but it was kind of a wake up call for me for sure. And it was very stressful because 
I basically spent that entire weekend trying to get back into all of my accounts across the internet and feeling fairly unhappy about it. But it was a pretty big learning experience for me just because, you know, I definitely consider myself to be somewhat impervious in terms of security, but something like this stupid incident, you know, tripped me up. And I think that, like, by default, the reaction for a lot of people when they encounter these types of scenarios is like a lot of deep shame. And that tends to prevent you from maybe raising notification about it. So that's the story I often tell, like in security talks and things like that. Like, hey, it happens to everybody. When you see something suspicious, make sure you you contact someone about it. Because, it, you know, even if it was directly your fault, then it doesn't matter what is important is addressing the situation. And also it taught me that two-factor auth saved my butt. <laughs> <laughs> so is Jason Harvey your real name? Yeah, right now. Oh, at the moment. Okay, good. How do we know you are who you say you are? Well, can you ever really know who you are? All right. Did we have one last story, Tom? Did you have a story? I can give a quick one. I'll tell you the first outage I caused when I joined Stack Overflow was within a couple days, actually, which I'm sure made all my coworkers say, what's wrong with this new coworker? But I made a, a change in DNS that was actually pretty much a gratuitous change. So in DNS... You have something called MX records, which basically tell the rest of the world, if you're going to send email to this company, here's how you route it. And I noticed that we were using the old Google Apps for Your Domain MX settings, which are still fine and dandy, but they have a new set that is preferred to be used. So I switched to the new set and there was a typo in them for people who are familiar with running email servers. I left the dot off the end of the domain names. So for about an hour, our company did not get any email and someone looked into it and said, hey, who made this change? <laughs> I was like, well, I did. Why? And they explained that we haven't been getting email for the last hour. So we reverted the change, yada, yada. The neat thing is this was one of the inspirations for us to write a better system for managing DNS at this company. And so instead of hand editing DNS zone text files, we now use something called DNS control, which I wrote and Craig, one of our S3 developers, helped rewrite recently to be even better. So, you know, actually, I want to say a great common theme in, in all three of these stories is there was no blame or punishment. Instead of blame, we have responsibility, the responsibility to prevent this kind of failure in the future, because outages are a normal thing. And... If you punish a person every time there's an outage, you will eventually not have any employees. This segues perfectly into our next segment, which is our news item for the day. An anonymous user on Reddit recently shared a story about their first day on the job, and unfortunately, according to the user, their first professional screw-up. After accidentally copying production settings from a setup document, the user deleted all data on a production database. When the CTO found out, the user was asked to leave and never come back and threatened with legal action. Wow. Yeah. I would say, is that a place you really want to work at? He <laughs> or she may have just dodged a bullet. Yeah. If you read the post, they were obviously pretty, I think, terrified. And the community quickly rallied around them and said, this is really not your problem. This is a problem with the place that you used to work at. Yeah, and from what I read, I mean, the type of mistake that was made, it seemed, at least from this person's point of view, at least as the story that they provided, it seemed like it was an honest mistake, but there was no systems in place to mitigate that type of disaster from what I was able to tell, you know. Yeah. You can never tell through these type of posts exactly what happened, but... I do not believe that there is such a thing as human error. What? 
Tom. I don't. Or as the cause for an outage. Well, first of all, there is no root cause of an outage. There are many contributing factors. If you think about, you know, why, why is something a success? If things are successful because many different things all happen to build that success. And failure is just another large outcome. So in the same way that one thing doesn't make a success, one thing doesn't make a failure. So there isn't root cause. There is contributing factors. And then the thing about there is no such thing as human error is something that I take from, I believe it's John Ausbau, who is a DevOps luminary and a friend of mine. And he will go to great lengths to prove this point. You know, there was no human error. Where were the contributing factors in that news story? The documentation said the wrong thing. That's a contributing factor. The fact that the system doesn't test doesn't have fail-safes or, or guards against bad data. That's a contributing factor. It's so many different things all conspired to happen uh, to cause this outage. There was no one thing, and so there's no human error. So how would you address this differently? So say this is a thing that happened here. We have somebody new. They're a junior dev. Their first day here, they accidentally wipe a production database. What's the right way, do you think, to handle that? Well, First of all, we'd have to understand what all the contributing factors were. Is there bad documentation? Is there a problem with our training process? Why wasn't there someone standing over the person saying, let me walk you through this potentially risky thing for the first time? Who wrote that document without having a third party testing it first, not a new employee testing it? In this case, the potentially risky thing was they were trying to set up their local dev environment, which involved setting up a blank database or a database and populating it with some test data, I believe. And at least the story that they told is by using the production config settings, they wiped the production database and I guess populated it with the test data. I mean, the first thing, not working underneath the CTO who was first incident response on that was to tell the person to get out and you're fired and we're going to pursue legal action. Like, I mean, you need to pull that person off the system to prevent problems. But the first thing that needs to be do is communicate, figure out exactly what happened and then everyone needs to work to fix it. It's not going to be a blame game. I mean, if there needs to be a teaching moment, then that could happen at a later time. But that day, I mean, you don't want to just to shout somebody down. And one of the things that I like about that particular story from the Reddit community, one of the highest upvoted responses to that is from the guy that deleted the GitLab data a couple of months ago. And he tells his experience about what happened at GitLab and about, hey, you know, I deleted the data, but this is how the company dealt with it. And like in GitLab's case, they were super open and transparent and they, they did the right thing. GitLab did exactly what they should have done in this scenario. Right. And if you think about the CTO who threatened to fire this guy or did fire this guy, what message did he send, and I'm assuming it's a he, send to all the remaining employees? The message he sent was, if you make a mistake, you will be fired which means if you see a problem, you're not going to try to fix it. You're going to hide that, which is going to cause bigger problems in the future. That CTO just created the next big outage. Instead of if he said, hey, you know, you're new, things happen, let's deal with it. Then the message that would have been sent is it's safe to work here. We have a safe environment to explore and learn and level up. And if you see a mistake, you should point it out and fix it and Problems will be fixed when they're small and they won't grow into big problems frequently in that fictional environment. The CTO is creating a, a toxic environment that's going to be less reliable, yet he thinks that he's done his good job of you know, being a responsible manager by you know, saying, look how serious I am about outages. I fired someone to prove how serious I am. So is there a system in place 
let's say you write a piece of code, does someone else then go in and like look it over? Or I mean, I just took an intro to Ruby on Rails and there's the red X that tells you when mm-hmm. the code is incorrect or there's something missing. But when you're writing something to prevent an outage, if that piece of code is like so important, is there someone else looking at it? I mean, you have yeah. to be so meticulous and detailed. It was just a dot for you, you know? Uh, right. At our company, we have what we call code reviews, which is basically a second set of eyes looks at any code before it goes okay. into production. It's optional. We don't do it very often at this company. I think we should do it more. But I have worked at companies where everything has to have a second set of eyes. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not as formalized here, but I think it's happening more and more just because, you know, the team is growing. And when you have a growing team, that's kind of one of the things that has to come out of it is some type of formalized code review to get things into production. So I think we'll probably hit that eventually. But right now, most of the developers are, I believe, instilled with the knowledge that, hey, if this is a potentially dangerous piece of code or if there's a good chance of making a mistake in this, they will absolutely actively seek review and be extremely meticulous about dealing with that piece of code. Yeah, I think you guard against this sort of thing in a few different ways. So one is by getting a second set of eyes, but you know, you can also put like sort of automated systems in place that guard against it, right? And so especially like on an SRE team, one of the things you want to get away from is get away from the point at which people are literally typing in commands to do dangerous things and get to the point where it's all, you know, there's tooling and automation and part of those tools is guards against causing the problems, right? So one of the things that everybody pointed out about this is why is it only a slight misconfiguration, you know, to wipe your personal database versus wiping production, right? Like, how is that even an easy mistake to make? Why does this script ever able to talk to production? Why um, are they putting production credentials in a document that they've given they to putting, a first-day employee? Why are they putting production credentials in a document? Well, it's that's just, true. And, and sentence there. And beyond that, I mean, catastrophic things happen. No matter how many systems you have in place to prevent them, catastrophic things do happen. You should be aware that they're going to happen and know how to recover from them. Like if our production database was to be wiped right now, I know exactly how we would proceed to go about recovering from that incident. And every company that runs a technical infrastructure needs to have that knowledge in mind as well and ideally have practiced that scenario. Yeah, I think a mature SRE organization would look at that situation after the problem is resolved, have a post-mortem meeting where they would discuss the timeline of what happened, as many contributing causes as can be identified, probably bring in logs of you know, database access and, and that kind of thing, and then come up with a list of five or 500 things that have to be done. You know, improve that documentation, add guardrails to this code, add error checking here, all these different things, and probably file a bug for each one of those and track them as bugs to make sure that they get done and you know, raise the visibility so that the management sees these action items that need to be completed and maybe assign a project manager to make sure that everything on that list either gets done or a business person says, you know, the return on investment isn't worth doing this one thing. We're going to accept the risk. You know, one of those two options. I was with you, Tom, right up until the project manager. Now you're just getting, this is just crazy talk now. (laughs) We don't have a lot of project managers here. All right. That is all the time we have for today. You have gone and wasted another hour of your life listening to Stack Overflow podcast number 111, recorded Thursday, June 8, 2017 at Stack Overflow headquarters. Our audio engineer is Carlos Hernandez. Audio editor is David Greenlee. Technology concierge, Michael Rosa. Producer in absentia is Jess Perdue. Executive producer, Caitlin Pike. For Tom Limoncelli, Mark Henderson, Jason Harvey, Ilana Itzaki, I am David Fullerton. Thank you and goodbye. Hi, everyone. Hi. It's going to be...
Let me tell you my craziest Rocky Horror Picture Show story. So I really only dressed up once a year, usually for my birthday, but I was the kind of teenager who was going every Friday and Saturday night. So I was real diehard. And years later, I'm out of college, I'm interviewing for my first job, and the person interviewing me in the middle of the interview pauses and says, this might be a weird question to ask, but have you ever heard of Rocky Horror Picture Show? And I'm like, oh no, like, <laughs> you know, because this is 1991 and it's not a progressive world like it is today. So anyway, I'm like, uh, yes, yes, I have. And he says, oh, oh I, I shouldn't ask. So he asks another technical question. Then he comes back to Rocky Horror. He's like, is there any chance that you were wearing like fishnets and uh, he describes my outfit? I'm like, that could have been me. Yes. <laughs> I said, so have you seen Rocky Horror? And he says, yes. I said, did you like it? And he said, no. So I'm like, this guy's not going to hire me. Oh, also because I was 24 hours late for the interview. Oh, not at all. <laughs> but I faked my way out of that. I opened up my date book to like a random page, pretended to read it, and then looked him in the eye and said, oh, I'm sorry. I have it for today. And he believed that I was right and he was wrong. <laughs> and so here I am, you know, 24 hours late. The guy thinks I'm some kind of, you know, freak. Go home. I get a job offer. After my first day, I finally ask him like, what was this? It turns out he was sitting a row behind me arguing with his friend over which was the best brand of C compiler for the Commodore Amiga. Was it the Aztec brand or the Lattice brand? And after listening to this debate go in circles for 10 minutes, I just turned around and blew him out of the water because I said something like, you know, 5.0 of each of them is just as good. It's just one is more like AT&T C, the other is more like Berkeley C. So if you grew up with AT&T C, you're going to like that better. If you grew up with Berkeley C, you're going to like that better. So will you just shut up and turned around? <laughs> and then the movie started. And 10 minutes into the movie, I get up in a cape, take off the cape, and there I am in full drag. And he's like, this guy that knew more about <laughs> compiler technology than either of us is now on stage. So he figured if I knew that much in high school, if I learned anything in college, I was worth hiring. Wow. So. That is an amazing story. I just, <laughs> it is. every part of it. That sounds like the kind of thing that like should not happen in real life, right? Like it that's, totally does. That'll be in the biopic. It sounds like in the movie, you'd be like, oh, come on. Like, it's the same guy 10 years later at the job interview. No way. Yeah, totally. I would see that movie. Joel's going to show up in 24 hours and look at his date book and say, I had it for today. <laughs> I had it for today.